Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius Podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest is Ari Saikawa. Uh, she's an associate professor, part of the Department of Environmental Sciences at Emory College. Uh, this is under the Gangarosa Department of Environmental Health, uh, part of the Rollins School of Public Health. Again, all this under Emory University. We're going to talk about uh, climate science. So, Ari, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, if you would, tell me about your research. What is it uh, focused on right now? Yeah, it's it's been a very interesting journey for me. So I started off being an air quality modeler and trying to understand emissions in places like the global south in Nepal and in China. And then I realized agriculture is a very important part of both air pollution and climate change. And so we've been looking at agricultural emissions that took us to work on doing the field work at the farm. And then we also got interested in indoor air pollution, and that has a lot to do with air, air pollution climate linkage as well. And now through the agriculture work, we also found a lot of heavy metal contamination uh, in the Atlanta west side. So that became a super fun site as well. So there has been a lot of different research going on. Uh, another part of work is involving plastic burning in Guatemala as well. So there's a lot of different projects that um, I've been working on recently. Well, let's talk about some of the projects. So pick one and, and let's, uh, you know, let's go more in, deep, in detail. 
Yeah, sure. Which one um, do you think is best? I don't know. We could do the plastic burning. That's probably a pervasive problem in a lot of countries. So you said in Guatemala, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So we actually found plastics being burned in Tibet first. And it was quite astonishing for us. The, the ambient air quality is very pristine in Tibet, but they burn a lot inside because it's very cold. So they burn um, a lot of biomass like yak dung in the household. And sometimes the household air pollution can get extremely polluted. So usually the hazardous air in Beijing is about 500 micrograms cubic meter of particulate matter, the very small particles that can go into your lungs and create health issues. But then in Tibet, we've actually seen about 25,000 micrograms a cubic meter of the fine particles, PM2.5. And some things that we found was that they burn garbage inside as well, because there isn't any infrastructure. And that can obviously be very toxic. Um, that can also lead to both climate change and air pollution problems. And um, well, why, why are people burning garbage in, in the first place? They have no sanitation or places to throw it away or they don't recycle or what's the reason? Yeah, there's there's no infrastructure where they can dispose of the garbage. And so the easiest thing for them is to burn them. And so in different villages, sometimes they have a dump site where they dump all the garbage and burn together in the community. Uh, in some villages, they don't have that either. And so they would just burn, you know, in their homes or um, outside or outside of their homes. And what we are seeing in, in Guatemala, in some some of the rural areas, is that they will burn usually outside of their homes um, because there is no pickup trucks, you know, coming to collect your garbage. Well, how does this stuff get to them in the first place then? They have no infrastructure. Yeah, so they have a lot of plastics, you know, the plastics are everywhere. So if, if you go to the stores, then you can get a lot of different um, plastics. But then there's no uh, collection service to recycle or to get rid of them. So there, there is abundant products, but you are just stuck with the waste. Does the government care or, you know, like, what's your involvement on the project? Are you trying to get them to stop burning the plastics and do something with them or you can't without infrastructure or what, like, what's the situation? Yeah, so I think the it's a very low hanging fruit for the government to be able to put the infrastructure, but that does cost uh, a lot of money, obviously. And so I think it just, the government doesn't care enough in most cases to create the infrastructure. So I think we do need to be pushing the government to be able to provide that necessary infrastructure so that people don't have to burn or people don't have to, you know, live with these old, all these waste around them. Well, has anyone approached the government and talked to them and see what their thoughts are? So that's an interesting question. I think, you know, there we've we've seen this happen in Nepal and in uh, in India as well and in Guatemala, obviously, too. And I think how do we approach the government? I think as a scientist, what we do is to research how the problem is for the human health, for example, and what kind of emissions are they causing and what the magnitude might be. And if the government were to actually implement the policy, how well the pro problem would be. And so that's how we've been pushing and we've been trying to work with, for example, the World Bank um, so that the government could take some action. I think it well, is. How, the World Bank is not the government, though. What does the government say and want? The World Bank, I'm sure, has its own agenda, but <laughs> that's right. Know, what, is it, what does the government want? 
Yeah, so I think it's very difficult for scientists to be approaching the government directly. Um, so uh, I haven't had the privilege to go directly to the Nepali government to ask them, for example, or to the Guatemalan government. What we are trying to do, though, is to approach the local community members and, you know, try to see what would be the best way to reduce waste. And I guess trying to raise awareness because sometimes people don't realize that that is bad for your health. And they're just doing that because that, that has been the that has been the habit in a way. And knowing well, what, that this could be bad for you can be a game changer. Are they burning plastic inside their home or outside or where? I guess the you know, do they have designated people that tend to the pyres of, of stuff being burned, or is it just everyone's burning a little bit on their own? So I think that depends on different places, but usually um in Nepal they make small burns. Like on the road, I've seen a lot of people just burn. Um, and then in Tibet, as I said, there, there are some communities that just burn together as a community outside. But then each of them also burns some small things inside their homes. In Guatemala, it, in the village that we work, uh, we work at, um, the Jalapa, we usually see each individual homes having an outside area where they burn um, garbage. And that includes plastics as well. So you just you're telling them about the dangers of it, but then what's the solution? What can they do right. instead of burn the stuff? Yeah. Do so they landfill? We, are there landfills, or what, what's the alternative to burning? Right. So what we are trying to do is first to reduce waste. So I mean, in this project, what we are um, trying to achieve is how much is actually being emitted from these um, plastic burning, and what is the health impact by looking at the biomarkers, and also how can, what would be the best solution for each of the different communities? So we would have the community meetings and try to figure out what the community members are interested in and try to reduce the plastic waste that would fit each of the different individual villages, if that makes sense. Yeah, but what's happening to them? Are they experiencing health effects? Can you tell? Is there, you know, when you speak to the village elders or leaders are they saying like a lot of people are dying young or are they not noticing anything or what's happening yeah so in tibet a lot of the life expectancies um has been very low it has improved quite a bit but it's still in the 60s and so there are a lot of different reasons for that i'm sure not it's not just about air pollution but i do believe air pollution is a pretty big component of it and when i ask them they say that this is how they've lived their lives and they don't see any problem with it. And what's interesting is they actually say that air pollution is not really what they're interested, they, they think is the problem, but climate change is. So they're much more worried about climate change happening and glaciers melting rather than them being exposed to these toxic air pollution. In, yeah. in different places, I think the, you know, how, how people react to it is quite different. So I don't want to generalize, but I think raising awareness is definitely a first step. Well, awareness of what? Again, if they don't care about the local burning and about you know how it affects their health, then what's the point? But, but climate think, change, then it's another very difficult, that's you know, an incredibly different issue that even their their efforts may may or may not affect enough to help themselves. Yeah, that's very true. But then I think if if you didn't know about the impacts of air pollution on your health. But realizing that that is a potential, I think people would could change how they think about, you know, what they do. And so we, what we've seen in Tibet is that if there are a lot of tourists that 
inform them about the danger of air pollution, they are very aware of, you know, what happens to their health because of that burning. And so they tend to have more chimneys and they, they tend to care more about air pollution compared to those that didn't know about it. And so those things take time. I, I don't think it's, you know, it's not like they don't care. I think it's more about that's how they've lived and then they weren't very aware. But if if people do start to realize that that affects your health, I, I do think that, you know, people do start to care and work on it. But you've explained it to them and they come back at you and say climate change worries them more or again, the glaciers melting, et cetera. Or, you know, how do they respond when you have told people about it? Yeah, so I do, I do tell them that, you know, air pollution that we are breathing together is really high and that's not going to be good for their health. Um, and then some people do tell me that, you know, that's how they've lived and then they care more about climate change. I think that is that, you know, that, that they care about climate change is, is, is great that they are aware of it. And of course, that is really related to how they live as well, because glaciers have been with them all their lives and then them seeing a lot of glaciers retreating must be a huge issue and the climate that they raise their yucks in that's changing very rapidly so that's obviously potential threat to how they've how they would live in the future do they even care about climate change or they just care about their local climate maybe if you're able to tell them that you know burning the plastics will first impact your local climate more than other climates. And it, it may contribute, or if you find a link where, you know, it looks like it may contribute to problems with their glaciers locally and problems with their climate locally, then they'd probably pay attention a lot more. If there's even a link to be made, if it can be made. But if not, you know, it just sounds like the approach uh, isn't really what they're concerned about, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. So what they tr- what we tried to do was that when we, you know, depending on what you burn, there is a lot of uh, what's called black carbon, the soot that come out of it. And then what happens is when they get deposited on the glaciers, then they get retreated much more quickly because they are black and then, you know, they absorb solar radiation. And so I think that link is there. But I also do think that it's a little bit unfair to be blaming them for all these that they are being uh, that they are going through because most of the impacts is not because of them. They have such a small part contribution to climate change. So I, I do wonder what the best way is to work with them and find a solution. Well, all right. So if they're not contributing much to climate change, but again, they're worried about their local conditions. Um, right. That's exactly just right. Just initially, it, it doesn't look like even tying plastic burning. I mean, I guess you could tie it a little bit. Like you said, if, uh, if soot ends up on the glaciers, that would be a problem and cause them to melt faster. Right. Maybe, I don't know. No, I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but if that was demonstrated, I wonder if that would, uh, that would help them. It would make it a more immediate problem to them. You know? And you're not blaming them, but you're saying, hey, you, know, you can reduce this and keep your glaciers in better shape, possibly a little bit, you know, by, uh, by doing this or not doing that. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think trying to find the link that they get interested in and then, you know, trying to, yeah, I, I think that is a very good point. How can we make them click? Um, and that's what we've been trying to do as well. Well, what's the, um, so that's where in Nepal, but what about Guatemala? What locally are they concerned about instead? Yeah, so in Guatemala, I guess they they really don't have the infrastructure in a very rural area and it's an indigenous village as well. 
And so for them, burning outside has been what they've been doing. And But I think learning that this is bad for their health, we've seen that some people do stop burning in, inside their homes and then change to, you know, either outside or some of them are creating like a dump themselves that they didn't have before so that they're not going to burn anymore. It is, I think it's it's quite fascinating how the knowledge is actually changing how they behave. But the what the best solution might be, I think, needs to really come from um, uh, the government so that, you know, we don't really want the land use being uh, filled either. I mean, land use, sorry, landfill uh, increasing either. So that that's the that's the dilemma I think we're having a little bit. Okay. What are some of the other projects you're working on? So we talked about, you know, burning plastic and garbage in Guatemala and Nepal, but what are some of the other big ones you're working on? Yeah, so we are very interested in agricultural emissions. And so from the agricultural soil, we actually see different greenhouse gases coming out. And there's also ammonia that come out of agricultural soil too. And so we've been trying to understand how we can potentially reduce greenhouse gas emissions and ammonia at the same time so that it's not just going to be good for climate, but also air pollution as well. Um, one of the projects we have is to look at the different practices for growing corn. And that's been going on since t- t- 2016. And we are trying to assess if the agricultural t- practice where we grow uh, perennial clover called white clover um, that can be sufficient so that we can, we don't need to provide any synthetic fertilizer on the soil. Fertilizer usually leads to a lot, a lot of um, nitrous oxide emissions and also ammonia emissions. And we are trying to reduce those emissions that are very important for climate and air quality again, and also be able to store more carbon in the soil. Well, there's a lot of, uh, I've seen a lot of a lot of this you know, regenerative agriculture talks a lot about it. I mean, there's plenty of, uh, of speakers out there talking about cover crops, you know, about no-till farming. I mean, all kinds of stuff. So I think there's uh, a lot of resources and practices and active farms that look like they're sequestering quite a bit of carbon in their soil with these practices. I don't know if you've spoken to any of them yet, but uh, I've seen some out there. There's one guy named Gabe Brown in North Dakota. Um, he talks about this, and there's Joel Salatin, and there's a few that I've seen. So they may be of help to you. To, you know, kind of fast forward what you're doing a little bit and help. Yeah, I, I know that there is so many work on carbon sequestration. I think what we are lacking is the link between carbon and nitrogen. So a lot more focus is just on how we can store more carbon in the soil. But I think what we need to think about is how can we store um, carbon and yet um, not let nitrous oxide be emitted at the same time. And I think that's a pretty difficult and sensitive balance. And because nitrous oxide is a very important greenhouse gas, um, we need to be thinking more of that, in my opinion. Well, most people are not even doing the no-till and the regenerative agriculture. So, I mean, that may be a, you know, if everyone did that instead of the traditional farming with tons of, you know, exogenous fertilizer, that would be a huge step forward. Does it need to go beyond that? Or, you know, I guess you're trying to, uh, what, stop the nitrous oxide from being produced in oil at at all? I'm sorry, regardless of the farming method? Right. So I think, you know, no-till and having cover crops, they are definitely going to be good for um, having more carbon on the ground. 
I think what we don't necessarily think about is what happens if we have more carbon then? If that is also going to lead to more nitrous oxide emissions, and if that stored carbon is not very stable and they're just going to be released back to the atmosphere, it's not really ideal. And so I think that's very important to consider both carbon and nitrous oxide at the same time, and hopefully ammonia too, so that we are not creating more pollution, like the fine, pro- fine particulate matter that we talked about, that's, that's bad for human health. Do you know if, uh, if soils that contain a lot of carbon are releasing them in the rate, or this is just a, uh, you know, a worry that you need to look into? So what we find is that if we have a lot more carbon in the ground, um, then we, we are seeing much more CO2 flux coming out. And so having cover crops, that's great for having carbon in the ground, but we are also seeing a lot of CO2 flux coming out. Um, if, but what, what we also see is that soils can serve as a methane sink, which is better than not having cover crop. But sometimes we see more nitrous oxide being emitted because of the cover crop being a nitrogen fixer. So that is a very delicate balance if we wanted to make sure as a whole, um, if the carbon equivalents um, taking into account all the greenhouse gases and all the fertilizer use and pesticides use, are we really being good for the environment? So you haven't done a side-by-side comparison of a no-till field with cover crops and animals grazing and one with traditional farming to see the total inputs and outputs of each system? So what we've compared is just uh, the bare ground, two different types of cover crops. So one is the crimson clover and the other one being cereal rye, and the last one being the living mulch system that I talked about, and how the total carbon equivalents compare. And what we find is that if we take into account the clover respiration, then we are potentially um, the best using the living mulch system. We can store a lot of carbon and Even though we do have a lot of nitrous oxide emissions, we are storing enough carbon and we are actually able to reduce the amount of pesticide and the fertilizer that is being used on the ground. And so total carbon equivalence as a whole comes out a little less compared to the other um, practices. But we haven't checked, you know. Is that really a reality? It sounds like a reductionist approach thing doesn't seem workable. You're dealing with the outside, you're dealing with biology and countless factors. So it seems like it would be better to compare, you know, two active farms with the two methods. Because again, a reductionist approach, you're going to be there for a thousand years comparing different variables, you know, and it may not be accurate at all. I don't know if you're allowed to do it that way, but maybe just an overall study might help to just give you like directionally, you know, if you compare again, two farms that are doing two different methods and there's a small difference. Well, now it's like, oh, back to the drawing board, but if it's a monstrous difference, maybe they would at least give you a directional symbol. Oh, wow, this way is much better than the other way. So now let's see the you know the particular variables that are making this way better or worse. Yeah. So I think I think there are definitely different ways that we can do the study, and that that's how the field work is very difficult because usually you do need different replicates to be able to make sure that what you're measuring is really generalizable in a way. And it, you know, if the starting point of the farm is extremely different, different, then that's also, it's, you're not really comparing apples to apples either. And so 
I think how you would make the study work is, is, is a bit of a challenge. I do agree that we do need to be looking at different farming, you know, different farms and different practices and grazing versus cover crops, et cetera. Um, yeah, we haven't been able to do that, but I think it is important because we do grow a lot of corn, what would be the most optimal way to grow corn, at least in the Southeast where we are really lacking uh, the data on these issues. I guess it would be tough to uh, to go out to where they're actively growing corn, let's say in Iowa, and look at the different methods there, because that might be a good test bed to see. You have like extreme monoculture concentration, you know, heavily fertilized, et cetera. And then you'll have a few farmers here and there that are, that are doing, you know, regenerative agriculture. It might be an easier comparison there where it's super active. Yeah. So most of the agricultural work is, com- you know, is really concentrated on the Midwest because that's the corn belt and then, you know, or in California. So I think those are really good places to study. But I do think that other places like the Southeast, we do have a lot of agriculture too. And so, you know, and the weather is very different. So for example, mm. the the cover crops that grow very well in the Midwest, they're not suitable for here. And so I think it is very important to be able to have a study that's based on the condition that we are in. And even though it is true that corn is mostly grown in the Midwest, there is a lot of corn grown in Georgia too. Um, So to have a better representation of what the US emissions would be as a whole, it is, I I think, a problem to lack the data in the Southeast. So I was going to make a joke. We we, we don't want an apples to apples comparison. We want to a corn to corn comparison. That's a good one. I should I should use that. Yeah, you, you can't even do an apples to corn comparison. It's really That's tough. That's right. It's, yeah, it, it makes it, sense it, what you're saying though. You know, like yeah, right. The climate's different. The cover crops are different, etc. So, in Georgia, for instance, have you been able to find spots or farms that are willing to let you go and and let's say do sampling? Yeah, so it's been very interesting because, you know, the this Living Mulch project, we started um, because of the collaboration with Dr. Nick Hill at the University of Georgia. So he's the one that came up with this Living Mulch system, and we've been very fortunate to work with him and figure out the greenhouse gas emissions. He's been talking a lot to the farmers, and now there are farmers that are interested in growing corn using that method. And there are some farmers now that are interested for cotton as well, because that's what um, a lot of farmers grow here. So I think there is a lot of potential and the government now is really interested in climate smart agriculture. So obviously when there is an incentive, farmers would um, be also interested in those kinds of techniques. So I think there is a pretty good alignment. And because there is so much difference with the Midwest, some of the cover crops, um, you know, that don't work there actually work very well here because we have a mild winter. That's pretty neat to figure out what would be best for us. Well, also, too, the, the emissions may be beneficial. Maybe the nit- nitrous oxides uh, for local organisms are beneficial. Maybe it brings more. I'm just making this up. but <laughs> Maybe it brings more bugs. Maybe, uh, you know, the next year for the field, it's in a better state. I mean. It could be, you know, instead of looking at it as, oh, greenhouse gas bad, maybe it's good. I mean, who knows? It's, this is a really difficult problem you're working on. I understand. It's, I'm getting more of an understanding of how tough it is and appreciation. Yeah, so nitrous oxide is a laughing gas. So if you go to, you know, the dentist, that's what you give, you get. But um, it's very inert in the troposphere uh, at the surface. So I don't really think um, that's going to be something that's going to be good. But obviously, you know. Um, it may not even make it up. 
you know, to the higher elevations? What if it stays at ground level and again, causes some effects that are beneficial? I don't know. So, you know, the so nitrogen yeah. fixers produce it locally and I'm sure it goes through, you know, as N2 gets reduced or oxidized to NO, NO2, NO3, NO4. You know, I mean, there's the mix of all those different, uh, you know, all those different chemicals and their effects biologically and all that. It just seems like horrifically complex. Yeah, it is very complex. And nitrous oxide is a very long-lived gas. So it, it does actually go to the stratosphere and it causes 10% of that get become um, NO, nitric oxide. And that that starts the catalytic cycle for destroying stratospheric ozone. And because nitrous oxide is not regulated in the Montreal Protocol, it's it's the most it's the biggest problem for stratospheric ozone depletion right now. And I think it's quite interesting now that there is so much space travel. There are a lot of concerns for how the stratospheric ozone might be depleted more in the future. And if we're going to have more N2O being emitted, that could potentially cause more stratospheric ozone depletion as as well as climate change too. So I think that's definitely something that we need to be mindful of. Okay. Well, very good. Eri, where can people find out more about all the projects you're working on? There's a lot, and it's great that you're doing all this, but where can people go, you know, maybe one place where they can see all that you're doing? Yeah. So my students have been working on the new website, so maybe that would be the best place. It's definitely not complete, but it's called psychawalab.com. That might be the, the best place to figure out what we are working on. Well, very good. Eri, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.